Red Salute, welcome to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we're going to be discussing this week. In the headline segment, we're going to talk about the absolute massacre that took place last week in Gaza. We had Israeli forces firing on Palestinian protesters, murdering several of them, and injuring thousands more along the militarized border there. We'll talk about that disgusting event, and we'll talk about the absolute lack of reaction from Western politicians, which is really nothing new when it comes to heinous actions perpetrated by Israel. The second story we'll talk about in headlines isn't a headline per se, I suppose, but it is a hot-button issue here on the left and something I've wanted to discuss here for a little while. Now, you have many leftists out there, especially Western leftists, pushing this narrative that modern-day China is a socialist country. So we'll discuss that a little bit, we'll kick that that hornet's nest, and see how many of you I can piss off in the process. After headlines, we'll move into the main segment for the week. Now, I wanted to start a series of shows about world historical revolutions. When we're talking about world historical revolutions, we really have the big three that we need to discuss. We have the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and of course the Chinese Revolution. So obviously it makes sense to start at the beginning, so we'll talk about the French Revolution this week. We'll at least begin that discussion. Now my intention is to not do a really in-depth history of that event. I will do kind of a brief overview of what was going on during that time period, just to give some context to our conversation. But I really want to get at what makes the French Revolution world historical. And I think the best way to do that is we'll compare and contrast it with another revolution that was going on roughly during the same time, obviously the one in America. So we'll discuss what makes the French Revolution world historical and what makes the American Revolution not world historical. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, messages about how I'm a useful idiot and communism killed millions of people, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I am on Facebook. You can just search for Manifesting Podcast. I do have a, a shabby page up on, on Facebook now. You can find me on Instagram. If you feel like supporting the show at all, which is always appreciated, you can find me on Patreon.com slash ManifestPod. Let's go ahead and jump into headlines for the week. Now, like I said at the top of the show, I want to begin by discussing this really vile event that took place in Gaza last week. So for those of you that are maybe a little unfamiliar with that situation in the Middle East, specifically between Israel and Palestine, I just want to talk about what Gaza is. Gaza is a 140-mile stretch of land, very tiny. It's home to over 2 million Palestinians. And these Palestinians are essentially living in an open-air prison. It's a living hell for them. They are subject to daily drone strikes, missile strikes, incursions, really any type of abuse you could possibly imagine at the hands of Israeli soldiers. And if that weren't bad enough, there's also a sweeping blockade in place that prevents any form of humanitarian aid getting into Gaza. So it is disgusting on just about every single level. Now this is something that is supported by both Republicans and Democrats in the U.S., This is one of those issues that they can really get together on, which is extremely shameful. Now, this bipartisan support from both Democrats and Republicans as it concerns Israel really just does show the hypocrisy of these Western politicians. These people do not give a shit about human rights abuses, whether they be around the globe or in the Middle East specifically. You know, they will often rely on that narrative when they want the U.S. to go into the, the Middle East and overthrow some quote-unquote brutal dictator who's guilty of human rights abuses. So they'll support that all day long. But then they'll also 
just give this unwavering support to Israel, even though everybody knows what's going on there. It's not a secret. So it just does show the naked hypocrisy of these Western politicians. Now, the event itself was slated to be about a month-long protest by Palestinians along that militarized border between Israel and Gaza. Now, this was commemorating Land Day. In March 30, 1976, six unarmed Palestinians were shot dead by Israeli forces simply for protesting Israel's aggressive land grab. So something to keep in mind here, if we look at those two million citizens that are now in Gaza, over 70% of them are refugees from other parts of Palestine who had to flee to Gaza because Israel came through and swept up and, and grabbed their land. They took their land by force. So it's easy to see why these people might just be, hey, a little pissed off about what's going on there. They have every right to protest these heinous actions. It's something that's been going on for decades. So you had the protesters set up along that militarized border between Israel and Gaza, and the Israeli forces just straight up opened fire on them with live ammunition. And you had the Israeli government come out and say that they used riot dispersal tools, which apparently are just bullets. And you also had the Israeli government come out and say that they were simply targeting instigators, but you know the proof came out that a lot of people were shot in the back or just shot while they were praying, so not really instigators. Now, the Western media's response to this was simply to just not cover it at all or come out with these really timid headlines about what had happened. I would say my favorite headline, but favorite's probably not the best word here, Probably the most ridiculous headline came from the Associated Press, who tweeted out that Palestinian protesters were burning tires and that the Israeli forces fired back. Fired back at burning tires? Okay. Okay. That's pretty disgusting, obviously. So it's not just the politicians in this country that give unwavering support to Israel and its crimes against humanity. It is also the Western media who are complicit in their silence. So all around, just a completely disgusting event, but nothing new. Moving from one international story to another, let's have a discussion on whether China is a socialist nation or not. Now, this is something I want to explore in more depth in a future episode, but I do want to talk about it briefly, just because it is a hot-button issue on the left, and it seems to be gaining a lot of traction, whether that be on Leftbook, Twitter, other social media platforms, etc., now, from what I gather, it seems the dominant narrative amongst Western leftists is that China is indeed a socialist nation, and if you do not support them, either you don't support communism, socialism, you have no idea what you're talking about, or you're just some laughable Western Maoists. But the facts don't really bear that out. Let's start with that empty insult that if you, uh, if you don't uphold China as a socialist nation, you're just a laughable Western Maoist find that pretty ridiculous just because Maoists across the globe, no matter where they might live, ascribe to that same line as it concerns China, that it's not socialist. So just because we happen to be Maoists that live in the West doesn't mean there's some kind of ideological break from what other Maoists are upholding across the globe. It's an empty insult, and I think it comes from the fact that these people that uphold China as a socialist nation don't really have a lot to work with if we really break down this issue. Let's just start with the fact that just about every major scholar who studies this topic agrees that after Mao died and Deng took over, China has been post-socialist since that point. 
So when you have people propping up this narrative that China is socialist now, they don't really have a lot of academic work to rely on. They're kind of making it up as they go with this bizarre defense of, of market socialism. Now let's look at something like the Cultural Revolution, because you'll have these people again who support this narrative that, that China is socialist. They try to find this link between Mao and the capitalist rotors and Deng all the way up into modern China. There is no link there, and the Cultural Revolution is where we see a giant break. Now the capitalist rotors completely trash the Cultural Revolution, and if you have people who are defending this idea that China is socialist today, they kind of want to sweep the Cultural Revolution under the rug because it does not fit their, their claim. Let's look at the Cultural Revolution, like I talked about in the book from uh, Dong Ping Han, The Unknown Cultural Revolution, which is such an important read. The people, the peasants, the ones who are the most beaten down and needed the most help, they long for those days because that's where they were lifted up. Again, like we talked about, they got to go to school, they got to go to hospitals, they got to live an actual life. So the fact that the capitalist rotors broke from the Cultural Revolution and the fact that modern-day supporters of China as a socialist nation don't want to talk about the Cultural Revolution is extremely telling. Another claim that many of these people will point to is, well, look at China's economy. It's a growing economy. They're doing what they can to get rid of poverty, but inequality is also rising as well. Well, then you would have to say that any other capitalist nation that has done the exact same thing is also socialist. There are capitalist nations who, yes, who have alleviated some poverty, the inequality has grown, and they were also growing economies. So that claim does not make China a socialist country. Again, you would have to apply that logic to other capitalist nations and say they're socialist as well. It just doesn't work like that. You don't get to grow your technology with capitalist relations and pretend you're a socialist nation. It's just not how it works. Two pieces I was turned on to that really explore this topic in depth. Um, give credit to On Mass Podcast here for posting this on his uh, his Twitter page. Definitely check out Charles Bettelheim's Class Struggles in the USSR and a piece entitled Rethinking Socialism by Pao Yu Ching. And that's really going to give you some depth and some information on China's capitalist system today. Now, obviously, there is a lot more to be said about this topic, and I do plan on doing a longer segment here in the near future. But I just wanted to put out this brief overview to kind of help combat this growing trend of people supporting China as a socialist nation. Because I understand the appeal of people seeing this party that calls themselves the Communist Party. They're not the United States, so there's like, you know, you want to support them just for that very fact alone. But we have to look at the facts. If we're going to be communists, if we're going to be revolutionaries, we have to look at these facts honestly. And we can't just jump into idealism, what we wish China was. We have to look at the facts, and the facts just don't bear out that they are a socialist nation, unfortunately. So again, we'll revisit this topic in the future. We'll talk more about Bettelheim's work and Ching's work and kind of apply their logic and their arguments to this very topic. Moving to the main segment for this week, bust out your guillotines, because we're going to be talking about the French Revolution. Yeah. 
Now, like I said at the top, I don't intend for this to be a super in-depth history of the French Revolution. You know, you can find a lot of that elsewhere. I want to talk more so about why this is a world historical revolution. I will give a brief overview, though, just so we have some proper context for this discussion. Now, if we look back at France during this time period, we have to look at the three estates. We have the clergy, we have the nobility, and we have the common people. We have the three estates there. And the clergy and the nobility were really running the show, more or less. So if we look back at this time period, France was kind of in dire straits financially. Not only were they involved in wars around the world, there was also kind of the rise of colonialism coming out of Europe. So you had them competing with other powers for resources, and you had this ineffective tax system where the common people, of course, were taxed higher than the nobility, and also some bad harvests. So there's a lot of reasons that went into why France wasn't doing so hot during this time period. Now, to try to find some way out of this mess, you had King Louis bring together the three estates. He brought together the clergy, the nobility, and the common people. Now, the third estate, made up of the common people, obviously had way more people in it than the nobility and the clergy. So when they got together for the General Assembly, the clergy and the nobility obviously recognized this. So they wanted to have one vote per estate so they could have a two-to-one advantage over the common people. Obviously, the commoners weren't exactly on board with this. They knew they had the numbers, so they wanted a vote per person so they would be accurately represented. Now, the estates made up of the clergy and nobility obviously had no interest in a more democratic process. They knew if this was more of a one-person, one-vote system that they would lose all the power they had over the commoners. So those two estates voted against the third estate and said, no, nah, we're not going to do this whole one-person, one-vote thing. We have no interest in that. The third estate, made up of the commoners, obviously were pissed about that. Like, all right, well, we're just going to check out completely. We're going to leave the estates general. We're going to go form this national assembly, and we're going to do this on our own, whether you like it or not. Now, King Louis obviously was not on board with that idea. He did not support the national assembly, even though the national assembly was growing in popularity, even receiving support from a few of the clergy and nobility who came over to their side, in at which time it became the national constituent assembly. King Louis saw this as a, a rising threat and did what he could to crush it, which led to riots all throughout Paris and culminated in the storming of the Bastille, which is kind of a royal fortress full of ammunition and whatnot. Seeing this, Louis decides to back down for a while, and you basically have these riots spreading throughout the entire country during what's called the, the Great Fear, where we had commoners storming the chateaus of nobility and just beheading people, and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So eventually this National Assembly gets to the point of abolishing feudalism altogether, so you don't have this tax system where all the commoners are having what wealth they do have moving up into the nobility and the clergy. Over the next few years, we really see a France that's in transition. We have a form of government called the Constitutional Monarchy attempted to be propped up. Eventually that falls apart within about a year. We have King Louis trying to flee the country. He's captured and beheaded. And we have France that's in and out of wars with a lot of different nations, especially Prussia. So I'm glossing over a lot of history here. I do realize that. But eventually we get to about 1793. We have Robespierre, Robespierre and the Jacobins in power. We have the French Republic. And we have the Jacobins beheading basically anti-revolutionaries by the thousands in what's called the Great Terror. And the Great Terror really gets us to the point where we start discussing what makes the French Revolution world historical. Now, one of the main things we as revolutionaries can learn from the French Revolution and what part of what makes it world historical has to do with these Great Terrors. 
Now you'll have a lot of historians who will look at the French Revolution and just think it's some aberration or some violent orgy, and they'll completely dismiss it because of that fact. But let's talk about that revolutionary violence, because that's still a discussion we have to have today, whether it be amongst liberals or some other leftists that assume there's a peaceful route to revolution, where you know, if you're taking a materialist view of things, that's just not the case. So I think Mark Twain has you know, semi-problematic nature aside, had probably the best quote ever about the French Revolution and the terrors or supposed terrors. And his quote goes like this. Twain said, quote, There were two reigns of terror, if we could but remember and consider it. The one wrought murder in hot passions, the other in heartless cold blood. The one lasted mere months, the other lasted a thousand years. The one inflicted death upon a thousand persons, the other upon a hundred million but our shutters are all for the horrors of the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with the lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak? A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror that we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by the older and real terror, that unspeakable, bitter, and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves, unquote. So just to nutshell what Twain said there so eloquently is when we talk about revolutionary violence, you know, what is a moment of terror compared to a lifetime of terror? When you have people who propose this idea of nonviolent revolution or just dismiss any idea of violent revolution, they're also dismissing the fact that under a capitalist mode of production, that the state has a monopoly on violence. Denying people health care is violence. Denying people food and shelter is violence. Propping up the police that murder people on the daily, that is violence. This is all terror. It's a lifetime of terror, and some people suffer an entire lifetime under it. So what is a moment of violence, a moment of terror, if it stops all that? We're taught to dismiss that terror, to fear that, that violence, while we just passively accept the violence of everyday life. So when you have somebody that dismisses the French Revolution because it was quote-unquote too violent, or dismisses any type of future revolution because it has the potential for violence, ask them what their definition of violence is, because that's a key question. And as Marx said, when it comes to revolution, we will make no excuses for the terror. So let's go ahead and continue the discussion about what makes the French Revolution world historical. And as I said at the top of the show, I think an effective way to do that is to compare and contrast it with a revolution that was going on at the same time, roughly, the American Revolution. Now, I'm going to rely here on J. Mufwad Paul's work from his blog, MLM Mayhem. I'll go ahead and link to the post on my SoundCloud page if you want to give it a read. But uh, JMP says, quote, Let's state some facts that anyone who is even marginally progressive past the liberal point of common sense normativity must recognize. 1. The American Revolution, though it began first, was not a world historical event, but a dismal war of colonial secession. It provided no important historical truths, theoretical revelations, and did nothing really new aside from permit a novel situation in which a subtler society delinked from its motherland so as to remain in the historical past. 2. The French Revolution was indeed a world historical revolution, insofar as it produced a truth process that spilled beyond its initial boundaries, and the terrors were part of this truth process. 3. Anyone who privileges the American Revolution over the French Revolution is engaged, intentionally or unintentionally, in supporting colonial capitalist ideology. 
So let's talk a little bit about the American Revolution and why it was, as JMP says there, just a colonial war of secession. Now, one thing that is rarely discussed about the American Revolution, especially here in the West or in high school textbooks, is the fact that it was a bit of a counter-revolution. Now, during this time period, the U.S. economy was very dependent upon slave labor. And at the time of the secession, the British were actually abolishing slavery. So you can kind of connect the dots there. The ruling class in the U.S. wanted no part of abolishing slavery because they were dependent upon that free labor to prop up their economy. So that was part of the reason for the break. So when you have people who claim that this was some great and noble revolution because the ruling class wanted to continue to own slaves, you have to start to wonder about the rest of the history as well, right? Not only did they want to be a slaveocracy still, they wanted to continue to push westward and slaughter indigenous people, and they wanted the quote-unquote freedom to do so, thus the break from the British. So let's compare that with the French Revolution. So in the U.S., during the American Revolution, you have the ruling class that just wants to keep on owning slaves, wants to exploit that labor. That is their noble goal, apparently. If we look at the French Revolution, that was the complete opposite. The ruling classes were scared shitless. This was an attempt to annihilate that establishment and that ruling class, and it really did send shivers throughout Europe. So for revolutionaries today, looking back at revolutions that we can kind of take our cues from, are we going to support the one that was just about these white colonials trying to exploit Africans? Or are we going to look at the one that actually sent a shiver down the spine of the ruling class? I think that's a pretty easy question to answer. And on that topic of slavery, because this is another major reason that the French Revolution is considered world historical, where the American Revolution is really anything but. Now, during that time period of the French Revolution, in Haiti, there were slave uprisings going on. And those slave revolts really forced the Jacobins that were a part of the French Revolution to radicalize. They recognized that the ideals that they were espousing had to apply to slaves as well, so they eventually got to the point of calling for the worldwide abolition of slavery. And not only the Jacobins, but you had the masses coming out in Paris in favor of these slave revolts. Now obviously compare that with the American Revolution, who were on the opposite end of the spectrum, who wanted to keep slavery a thing as their main pillar of their economy. You look at those two revolutions and you tell me which one you support, the one calling for an end of slavery or the one trying to keep slavery going. Again, a pretty easy question to answer. And I don't think it's an outrageous claim at all to say that the founding fathers, who were a giant part of that American revolution, if they were alive today, would see eye to eye with white nationalists. That's not outrageous at all to say. That's simply stating the facts. So again, you compare these two revolutions. Yes, the French Revolution, at the end of the day, is a bourgeois revolution. It was not a socialist revolution. We'll discuss that when we you know, talk about the Russian and Chinese revolutions. But even as a bourgeois revolution, with its limited scale, is still vastly more important than the American Revolution. We can actually learn something from the French Revolution. We saw the support of worldwide abolition. It gave us a lot to talk about in terms of revolutionary violence and revolutionary terror. It's things, you know, we can apply today from this revolution. If we look at the American Revolution, we don't want to apply shit from that revolution today. Very much the opposite. If anything, it taught us what not to do. So you can see the difference there between the two. Why one's world historical, why we can use facts from it today, and why the other one we don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. All right, so we'll go ahead and wrap up this discussion about the French Revolution with one more quote here from Victor Hugo from Les Mis. Quote goes like this. Justice has its anger, my lord bishop, and the wrath of justice is an element of progress. 
Whatever else may be said of it, the French Revolution was the greatest step forward by mankind since the coming of Christ. It was unfinished, I agree, but it was still sublime. It released the untapped springs of society. It softened hearts, appeased, tranquilized, enlightened, and set flowing through the world the tides of civilization. It was good. The French Revolution was the anointing of humanity. All right, so that's going to do it for the show this week. Next week, we're going to continue our talk about world historical revolutions, and we're going to discuss maybe my favorite thing of all time, which is the Russian Revolution. Now, this is something I've done a lot more reading on. I'm a little more well-versed in, to be quite honest with you, as opposed to the French Revolution. So it's something that's probably going to last past one episode. It may be two or three, depending, just because there's so much history to talk about there. And if we're talking about socialist revolutions and the idea of communism, this is, in a lot of ways, where it really began. So there's a lot to be said about the Russian Revolution. We will dip our toes into that next week. Again, if you have any questions, comments for me, just want to talk, you can find me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I do have the Facebook page, Manifesting Podcast. I am on Instagram, rarely. Um, and if you do want to support the show, which again is always greatly appreciated, you certainly don't have to. But if you do, I am on patreon.com slash manifestpod. All right, until next week, red salute.